Hey guys, welcome back. It's Chris Bercher. This is Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. This is episode 99, uh, The Uniqueness Imperative. Um, I got two more episodes before I start a massive shift in what Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom will be doing. And I got so a, a little bit about that. One announcement, and then I want to talk to you about the uniqueness imperative. And I've sort of saved this for episode 99, and I got one more surprise at episode 100 as a result of this whole thing that's been building. And what I've learned talking to you and hearing from you and sort of thinking about (laughs) getting all the stuff off my chest that I wanted to throw out there. And, uh, you know, now I've got like a 100-episode outline of what will essentially become at least one book. And what I'm going to do starting at episode 101 is write the book in real time. And each week will be a discussion, a pontification, a relation, a story about whatever it is I'm working on that week. So it's a little bit masturbatory. It's a little bit selfish. And I'll be using KEW as a a, a tool and helping me move forward, and as a milestone, and as a motivator. But I also think it's going to, and a fleshing out, you know. Um, but depending on where the episode lies in the week's progression of thoughts, it could be the seed of that week's idea, or it could be the the end result of whatever that particular section of a chapter uh, will be about. And it'll basically sort of be in real time and in the real order of writing the book and um, the, the sort of interim goal will be a book proposal and, but ultimately uh, I don't care. Um, I'll self publish in the end if I need to, but I imagine it's going to take the most, the, the better part of a year to get through multiple episodes and chapters, maybe 15 to 25 chapters. You know, that's pretty, pretty much a year's worth of time of weekly posts. Anyway, so that's exciting. And the book will contain, Ideas from this episode, episode 99, as well as episode 100, which will become next, which will be next week. And that one is going to be um, the evolution paradox. So the uniqueness, imperati- the uniqueness imperative and the evolution paradox will somehow meld to be this bigger story about, you probably could guess, DNA. The second big announcement I've got that I'll give you a little bit about now, but more um, next week, so I don't want to eat up too much time with these last two episodes, is I've, I've entered into <laughs> a working relationship with one of my best buddies. You know him, Paul Godola. He's been in four, uh, well, two different interviews and four different episodes on KW, and he is a, as I've described him before, he's been up on the mountain to pontificate about the meaning of life. And he's come back down from the mountain to share with us what he learned. And I've read his book. I helped him edit it. I learned something from him every day. So it's going to be super exciting for us to do a joint project, which is basically what we've been doing anyway, and just put it out there on a YouTube channel called Being Better Being, because that's really what we both are trying to do. And we think a lot of you are too. And in as much as he has learned a lot, he isn't by no means a guru, and he will tell you as much himself. Um, but he does have a lot of insight, and he's thought about these things and organized these thoughts into catchphrases almost, sort of like everyone thinks they're right. And, um, yeah, it's going to be really exciting. So 
I'll tell you more about that. We've got five or six episodes in the can and we haven't launched yet. But when we do, you'll be the first to know, except for the people who find it randomly on YouTube. Okay, so that's a lot of announcements. But what I really want to talk about is something I've been calling the uniqueness imperative. And for lack of a better term, let's pick that apart. Uniqueness, you know, it's for things to be different, but and that difference is not judged as being a detrimental feature. Uniqueness sort of implies something special, you know, a snowflake, if you will, which is the worst side of the metaphor that someone would be so entitled because they are this um, this unique snowflake of an existence that deserves some special treatment or attention. That's not what I'm talking about. Uniqueness in the, in, in the natural selection sense and that every individual being, no matter how similar, except, with, except for a few species and ants and bees come to mind, have distinguishing personality types. They look a little bit different, you know, as a result of recombination, meiosis, um, and sexual reproduction, every individual organism is unique relative to every other individual in some way, even among the ants, right? Their unique roles, at least. There are some. And so this idea is that uniqueness is at the center and is no longer makes someone an outcast or different or, or, or less than or other. It's, it, it is something we're going to focus on and sort of say, your uniqueness is important. And this goes toward the concept of diversity and the idea that diversity improves the system by having redundancy among parts, more varied parts, and special and new features that can arise due to someone expressing their uniqueness. Okay. And the imperative part is that we're at a point in time where something has has to change. We're becoming more and more addicted to our phones. We're becoming more and more isolated from one another. We're experiencing you know, that we've sort of worn the system out with respect to world wars where now we can have the capacity for nuclear weapons that could literally obliterate everything or large swaths of humanity. We've exhausted the planet's resources um, and we've sort of been behaving pretty poorly in this particular blip of the human evolutionary period a few hundred thousand years on Earth for the last maybe 500 our behavior has become a little bit embarrassing. And, and it's, so it is imperative that we do something. And so built into this title, you need this imperative. My, my idea is that a solution to our bigger problems is actually going to be found in our uniqueness. And until we can learn to prioritize that, to flip you know, the sort of MO, which is currently we all need to be as alike as possible, which comes from a leadership governance model that says if we can predict how our constituents are going to act, they'll be easier to manage and less likely to rebel. We're all good. We're all little good little citizens, right? We behave and we're indoctrinated in the ways of the schools and the churches and we become all the same. And so we, we got to completely undo all that. <laughs> and I think if you, if you, okay, so my sort of model is based on, I don't know what I would call like a Darwinian religion. You know, I don't have, I grew up secular. I, I grew up sans religion, not anti-religion, not 
you know, opposed to anything. We just, I just didn't do it. It wasn't a part of my natural. And again, what I've said before is that made me naturally curious about all religions and like, what is this? How come I don't do it? So I came about it from a unique direction. Unlike most other people's take on religion, which was you just get spoon fed and indoctrinated into whatever your family was. Um, I didn't have that. And, and, and what that resulted in me, I think, being a lot more open-minded and a lot... Well, I'm still judgmental, right? I mean, I still grew up a teenager. I still went through my teenage years, and I still have some of that. And I still think a lot of it is a little bit silly, but I, but I, but I get it. I can see beyond that stuff and just kind of see it from an outsider's perspective, from an observer perspective, and sort of appreciate that for what it is. And the closest thing that I have found to something that works for me is basically on the origin of species and or, or Darwin's ideas of natural selection. And so at the center, you know, the God, if you will, at the center of my worship space is this molecule called DNA and how it the it cooperates with the environment to move this all bio, biology through forward through time. And the central tenets of that belief system are the primary directive of DNA is to become immortal and reproduce itself because the vehicles that it lives in are necessarily temporary. Cells die. And so it had to also evolve some mechanism for making it permanent, and that is sexual reproduction, the expression of DNA through protein synthesis and all these. And and, and just that it's such a complicated molecule, um, and the and maybe a little bit because scientists are so arrogant that they have said that ninety five to ninety nine percent of the genome is basically just a bunch of junk because we don't understand it. I find that incredibly encouraging. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like the ocean's depths or exploring space. When I hear a scientist say, "Oh, that's just a bunch of crap," I go, "Ooh, <laughs> we we ought to dig into that and find out if what they're saying is actually true." Because I can see the motivation for the scientific community to, um, in its lack of understanding or ability to understand the subject, to simply sweep it under the rug. That makes total sense to me and makes me really curious about it. And so I think the uniqueness imperative. For those not willing to accept it as a religious dogma, and I'm not saying I really do that, but to a certain extent, that this is what I believe in. I believe the magic of the world can actually be, can actually be explained, and I'm not saying it's the cause of, or described in a way that the Bible describes metaphors. DNA can describe literal or metaphorical features of being human and biological in this universe in it, in itself. And we can look to it to answer some of the questions that we have because we understand a lot about it. We have been able to identify it and we can't even see it. We can understand how it works. It's kind of like physics, but it, it comes from us. And so if we're going to look at something to answer some of these questions, why look to God or, or, or to the universe or to space, I mean, or to some things we really don't understand when we have basically a instruction manual in our, every one of our cells, <laughs> just an idea, right? And so how that pretend, that's sort of the basis for these next two episodes is, uh, is, um, the idea that these fundamental questions of life, why am I here? Who am I? What is my purpose? What is the meaning of life? 
we can actually just look inside ourselves first, or as one of many ways of answering the question, and sort of see what comes up. You know, like a the ultimate thought experiment. Like, what if the secrets to the universe were encoded in our DNA or in our mitochondrial DNA and kept there for, for this very purpose? <laughs> why not? Why, why is that so hard to believe? Or, or hard to even open the door to accepting? And maybe this should be a science fiction movie. But, I, you know, I don't have the capacity to do that, so this is what I'm doing. Okay, so but the, that's the premise of the book and the evolution paradox. And, um, you know, that, that DNA could be treated as some sort of a source of explanatory uh, value. The uniqueness uh, imperative basically is an explanation and a practice in a trying to verify, test the hypothesis that we all are supposed to learn what our unique purpose is. We're all supposed to make some contribution to the greater, the great big whole. That we're all supposed to develop our personal skill sets and become the person that we are meant to be. I, it's kind of like the secret in manifesting. I want so bad for those things to be true. I'm one of these people that when you say, you know, you need to find your unique purpose. That's why you hate your job. You haven't found what you do. You can do what you love. That's your birthright, blah, blah, blah. I want so bad for that to be true. But I haven't really found any satisfying explanations as to why it is. Nor have I really even seen causality in the people who claim to have found their purpose, and therefore can teach you how to do it. Like, that all just seems like snake oil to me. Now, I know people, one of my best buddies, Brian Williams, who it's pretty obvious what they were put on this earth to do. You know, he's a musician, and he's he's worked 20 years in the insurance field, and he's actually just finally, at about 45, decided to give that up and play music full-time, and it's been this giant release of perfection because he's finally matched what he was meant to do with the actual thing. <laughs> and it's and it's beautiful to watch. And I want that for everybody. I want it for myself. But again, all of the ways that... I feel like it's snake oil. Everybody wants that. And so there's all these snake oil salesmen out there trying to sell people that. Well, I came about this circuitously just because I'm literally flabbergasted. I got no other word. At the complexity and the beauty and the simplicity of the DNA molecule and what it does and how it, the role it plays in life. And I can't help but wonder if we really understand everything that it does or, or even can. And, and, and that leaves the door open for, can't this then potentially explain some of these other big questions related to the, why am I here? And what is my purpose? And so if you think about what DNA is, it was designed or, Involved or invented or created or whatever. It would, its job is to perpetuate life through immortality in the face of an ever-changing dynamic universe. In other words, DNA couldn't have just built the perfect organism that could live forever because for whatever reason, matter is not permanent. And so nothing can live forever. So it's got to have multiple generations. It's got to go through mitosis and cell division in order to create replicas of itself that refresh every so often. That has to happen because nothing is permanent. But the problem is the environment into which those new individuals are born is going to necessarily be different than what it was the first time. So any one way 
a new being would be made has to contain the capacity to adjust, acclimate, um, adapt to this new environment through time. And that's done by sexual reproduction, asexual reproduction, mitosis, simple cell division with very minimal chance for variation existed in like 95% of the biological history. That was the way it was done. Sexual reproduction arose, which allowed actually having of the, uh, well, recombination of half of uh, the, the father's genetic material and half of the mother's genetic material to produce a 50-50 mix in the next generation was the kicker, right? It took a long time for that to evolve. Was that intentional? Was that purposeful? Was that the the obvious result of this process? Why did it take so long? I don't know. Um, I think it had to do with new resources becoming available and those resources becoming limited, things like space and time and nutrients, whatever. It happened. And so now we have a real mechanism of change and an adjustment and adaptation through time, which greatly increases the probability for immortality, Immortality is the goal. This is a real sexual reproduction is a real good boost <laughs> to making that happen. Um, so every individual of whatever biological organism has a impossibly unique set of DNA, even identical twins, that represents a genotypic, so blueprint instructions. And phenotypic, uh, the physical expression of those instructions, roadmap that's different from anything that preceded it and different than anything that it will become. With over 3 billion base pairs, uh, 99% of which we don't know what they do, there's a whole lot of potential for new and a whole lot of improbability for redundancy or repetition, exact repetition. Now, the only thing the unique, that's all just the way it is. The only thing the uniqueness imperative says is because the DNA is so important, because it contains information that, and here's another important tenet, will necessarily interact with its environment, the epigenetics part of this, to modify how it gets expressed. It's not like the recipe is already written and it's just a matter of making it happen. It can The DNA can be translated, that's a biological term, but you know what I mean, transformed phenotypically in a million different ways, depending on decisions made by the individual and environmental conditions, abiotic and biotic conditions. So that... You know, some people could argue that's predetermined and it needs it to go in a certain direction or there's some idea of what it should be. That's not the point. The point is each individual is given this unique blueprint to do with the best that it can. And I'm just saying the imperative is it's our job. It's our role. The solution to our historic and future problems is inherent in this statement that we have to express that to the fullest. And the best way that we know how, as the stewards of the, these, these, this set, this unique set of information, as individual stewards of this, it's our responsibility, our purpose, our imperative to grow that out into the most beneficial form possible and beneficial meaning to us as individuals and 
to the whole because inherent in this model back at the beginning when I'm talking about you know the the the, the primary directives of immortality um the other one is the dualistic nature of individual biota. We are individuals, but we are part of the whole at the same time, the literal yin-yang of reality. And so we have to express our DNA as, our, as individuals, find our unique purpose, figure out what our talents are, express those into the world in order to meet our own personal needs for belonging and, and purpose and meaning, as well as to benefit the group. So that sort of eliminates a lot of th- of arguments of people saying, well, Jeffrey Dahmer thought eating people was, you know, his biological imperative, and that got his needs met. But that that doesn't work <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. And it's it's easy to come up with all these yeah buts and these, these exceptions to these rules. But again, let's just play it out. That it, I believe that if we could then live our lives in such a way that we minimize the barriers and the resistance to doing that, things like the domestication process where we're brainwashed in schools to become these good citizens and these good consumers and these addicts of our iPhones so that advertisers could just convince us that we need to buy more crap. What kind of life is that anyway? You know, to, to that sort of stuff is... is, is and antithetical <laughs> to this imperative. Therefore, that's the, the sort of life impediment that we need to eliminate, right? If we could just think about it, if there's a utopian novel written with this imperative, it will be like, oh, it would be so easy then to start to recognize these impediments that get in our the way of us doing that. And we would simply just start eliminating them one by one in order to create this utopian environment where everybody can do this. Everybody is free to explore and develop their natural talents because we trust that whatever those are, are going to benefit society as a whole. They're going to make this person happier, whatever that means, more satisfied, less suffering, more likely to make a contribution, more likely to be able to see clearly what needs to be done. I mean, think about think about a leadership position that doesn't have to deal with the basic BS of, well, I'm having 10 affairs with my wife and I got to cover these things up and I need this money, but I can't pay taxes on it. It just, it seems like that would be a way to sort of, everybody, you know, again, if everybody took the red pill and woke up one day believing in this crap, what would that look like? I mean, it's a great, and that's all I'm, I'm doing, asking to do here is, is play that out. And the beautiful thing in the context of just the uniqueness imperative to me is this provides the most convincing answer I've ever heard to of, about why it's important that you realize your individual talents and purpose in your life, both to be a happier person who's then more able to make a contribution to the whole of humanity and potentially in such a way that, well, definitely in such a way that it contributes to solving the problems that we have, both as individuals and as a group, and not making them worse, right? I mean, if you look at the way the world works, it's this continual, these choices that people make for the worse or for the better, because we've linked things like money and power to a reward system related to the things that are for the worse, of course people are going to choose those things. But if there was some imperative 
inherent inside each individual person to make fewer choices like that and to potentially make choices opposing that for the better good, what would that world look like? So not only does it make me feel better, like, oh, it's okay to let my freak flag fly, you know, and because I'm going to do it in such a way that doesn't harm others. Because again, part of the early assumptions is that what I do has got to make a contribution. It's not going to hurt people. And why would it? You know, and, and, and the last thing I'll say um, before next week is that I believe that this isn't a process of learning something new. I think we actually used to live like this. This is how we used to be. It made sense to encourage people to develop new talents in the face of an ever-changing environment while we were still learning. And technology has convinced us that we already know everything and we don't need to do that anymore. And now we're sort of in this weird holding pattern, directional change. And I don't know if that started 500, 2,000, 200, 10,000 years ago, but certainly in a very short part with the preceding 190,000 years plus, I think this is how we lived. So this isn't really a, an, ex, an, an exercise in, unlearn, in learning. It's an exercise in remembering. And if you buy into genetic memory and the fact that this junk DNA might actually, and mitochondrial DNA might have some memory, we probably already know how to do it, right? Next week, I'll talk about the evolution paradox. This has been Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom, Episode 99, The Uniqueness Imperative. I'm Chris Bircher. Uh, Looking forward to sharing some new things with you, and I will see you next week. Take it easy.